You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Did anybody bring a Bible today? I thought I might use a Bible today. It's Easter. And uh, hey, this is Harvest Bible Chapel. Bible's our middle name, so let me invite you to open your Bible or open your Bible app to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Do you know what separates Christianity from every other faith system on the planet? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it is a staggering claim that the founder of Christianity didn't design this movement to be based on what he said. Every other faith system is founded upon the teachings or the profound philosophical statements of its founder, not Christianity. Christianity is not based upon what the founder said. Christianity is based upon what the founder did. And the founder of Christianity did something that no one else ever did. He rose from the grave. And if he didn't rise from the grave, he's just another good, dead philosopher. But if he did rise from the grave, we better take note of what he said. And that's why we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Savior for us this morning. There is no salvation, there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no hope of resurrected eternal life for any of us, there is no future. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is reduced to just another good man with a good heart that set a good example. And do you know what the tragic reality would be if that was true? If Jesus Christ hadn't risen from the dead, there are several billion people on this planet this morning wasting their time. They're deceived, and we are believing fake news. Now listen, our news is not new news. Our news is old news. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Our news is good news, and it's the same news every year. I've told some of the people that pray for me when I'm preparing messages, I really, I really struggle because I feel like I say the same thing every Easter. It's not new news, but it is good news, and it's news that nobody in this room can remain neutral about. The fact that Jesus Christ claims to be risen and alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, is not something you can remain neutral about. It's too earth-shattering for that. It's too controversial. It's too serious. It's too significant. You have to either receive it as true or reject it as a lie, but nobody is allowed to leave today neutral or passive. Now, as we've gathered all of our congregations and all of our services together. By the way, if you looked around, this is Harvest Bible Chapel. When we all get together for a party, wow, I think we need a bigger room. Uh, is this building for sale? Uh, this, this is working nicely this morning. But when we get together, what we are celebrating is something that is very hard to believe. And there are actually just two basic groups of people here this morning. You fall into one of these two groups. Now, 
Each of the groups thinks that what I'm about to preach is for the other group. Group number one, you already believe this stuff. You've heard it. You could probably tell the next sentence that's about to come out of my mouth. And you've been praying all week for the people in the other group. Wait. Don't be too quick to think this message is for somebody else. You may have mistakenly thought that the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were simply the ABCs of Christianity. Listen, folks. It's the whole alphabet. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not what just gets you into the kingdom of God. It's how you make all progress in the kingdom of God. No matter what you're going through, whether you've had a time in your past and you've got a story like Frankie and Brienne, and maybe you prayed a prayer when you were seven years old and you walked an aisle and you gave your life to Christ and you're at church every week and you serve and you're on a volunteer team and you wouldn't dream of missing an Easter service. Listen, you've still got issues. And do you know what the answer to your issues are? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't think the gospel is the answer to your issues, you don't properly understand your issues. Because every time we are confronted with the reality of the risen Lord, God uses that truth to drive it deep down into our heart to produce in us new faith and new repentance. We don't stop believing once we come into the kingdom. We continue to believe, we continue to wrap our lives around the truth of the resurrected Lord. And so don't be too quick to think this message is for that other group. Now, if you're not in that first group, you're in group number two. And you're here this morning and quite honestly, you're wondering what all the fuss is about. Um, Why the confetti? And why is everybody jumping around being so excited about this stuff? And you've got questions about whether or not dead people can actually live. It's interesting to think about a lot of people that have doubts about the resurrection watch The Walking Dead and are really into zombie movies, but uh, that's another issue. Uh, There's something in the human heart that thinks dead people can live, and, and yet we race past the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you've got questions, welcome. You have come to the right place this morning. You probably think what I'm preaching is for those other people, those people that go to church all the time and the people that brought their Bibles and the people that that get so excited about church. And maybe you've got questions this morning. And some of you are thinking, I left that a long time ago. I used to go to church. I don't go anymore. Maybe the reason you stopped going to that church is because God stopped going to that church. And if God stopped going to that church, you have permission to stop going to that church too. Find a church where God moves, and by God's grace, we're praying that God's presence would be here, and you would sense it this morning, and it would wipe away your doubts, and you would be convinced before you leave of the things that we have placed our faith in. Others of you are really skeptical about this, not because you don't trust Christ, it's because you have trouble trusting Christians. And before you're going to trust Christ at a deeper level, you're going to have to trust a Christian. Hey, I know you're skeptical about Christians. We can tend to be a little hypocritical. On our worst days, we're really hypocritical. 
And could I just say to you, if you're in that group of people that doubt the hypocrites, on behalf of all the hypocrites at Harvest Bible Chapel, we plead guilty and we apologize. We are not always a good example of the things that we say we believe. In our attempts to be courageous about the things that we believe, so often we lack compassion. And sometimes in our attempts to be compassionate, we're not courageous enough to tell you, you're a hypocrite too, just like us, and you ought to join the team. You'll fit right in. And I say that with much compassion. The truth of the matter is, both groups have the same issue. You know what the issues are? It boils down to this. Both groups have a tendency to put our faith in ourselves. Both groups have a tendency to trust self-righteousness in order to gain favor with God. Both groups have a tendency to turn to functional saviors like alcohol or sex or entertainment or sports to make us feel better about ourselves. Both groups have a tendency to minimize our offensiveness to God. Both groups hate being called dirty, rotten sinners. And both groups resist surrendering control to God. Now listen, if you're in that second group and you have questions about the things of the death, burial, and the resurrection, you're going to love the Bible story that I'm about to read through. Because those that actually follow Jesus the closest had those same questions. Let's begin reading it here in Mark chapter 9. Let's pick up the story in verse 2. It's during the last year of Jesus' life, and He invites three of the 12 disciples to go on a little mountain expedition with Him. And so in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And so Jesus leaves nine of the disciples at the bottom of the mountain. He takes the in crowd, the cool kids with him, up to the top of the mountain. Now, don't you love a mountaintop experience? And you've had a mountaintop experience. Um, in case you haven't noticed already, this is a mountaintop experience. We have ascended the mountain. Hey, how cool would it be just to kind of live here the rest of the week? I mean, let's just do this every day. And let's just, let's just hang out with each other and that's a mountaintop experience. And so these guys got to go on the journey to the top of the mountaintop, an exclusive journey with their tour guide, Jesus. But then something happened that got their attention at the end of verse 2. It says, As he, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah, representing the prophets in the Old Testament, and Moses, representing the law, what was written in the Old Testament, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, somehow you knew Peter was going to be the one to speak up, right? And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good to be hanging out with Elijah, Moses, Jesus, and Peter. Don't you think he was feeling pretty cool? 
I mean, he's hanging out with the in crowd here. He says, it's good. It's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop forever because what he was seeing was the glory of God in a way that had never been seen before. It says that Jesus was transfigured. It was as if Jesus unzipped his humanity and showed them his deity. The glory of God was radiating from him in a way that they had never seen before. And then he zipped himself back up. Look at verse 6. They didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Then verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Anybody have a clue who that was? Uh, That would have been the father validating that Jesus Christ was his son. For those of you that wonder if Jesus ever claimed to be God, well, here's um, an even greater statement. God claimed that he was the son of God. He said, this is my beloved son, and here's some good advice. Listen to him. Um, Perk your ears up. Lean into what he's saying. Verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So Jesus zips himself back up. And verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, which inevitably we must do, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, can you imagine going on this journey and seeing what you saw, hearing what you heard, and on the way down the mountain, Jesus says to Peter and James and John, hey, Don't tell the other nine guys what happened up here. How in the world is that even possible? Maybe a better question is, why, Jesus? Why wouldn't you want us to tell everybody that God the Father called you God the Son? Why wouldn't you want us to publish that? Aren't we supposed to be evangelists? Aren't we supposed to share the good news? I think there's three reasons why Jesus told them not to tell anybody yet until he was risen. Number one, I think they had a bunch of head knowledge that had never transformed their heart. And he was waiting on the truth of what they knew to make an 18-inch journey down into their heart and transform them and transfigure them. Number two, I think that Jesus knew that they would be tempted to be arrogant because they had some special mystical experience that the others didn't have. Be careful of people that speak of special, mystical, personal revelations that others of us don't have. And here's the main reason I think Jesus told them not to tell until He was risen. Because it is dangerous to preach a message that excludes the cross. This was before He went to the cross. And they wouldn't fully understand who Jesus was and what He was doing until they understood that He would become the crucified Christ who would be slain for the sins of the world and then He would rise from the dead. And so He tells them, guys, why don't you wait until you get the full story before you start preaching a message without a cross? Verse 10, so… They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
they questioned what does this rising from the dead mean? That is a good question. And that's the question we're going to seek to answer here before we're finished. We're going to see three things that Jesus rising from the dead means. Now, we could list about 175 of those things. We're going to boil them down to three so that we can get done before 6 p.m. tonight. And so, what does this rising from the dead mean? First of all, Jesus' resurrection means He is who He says He is. Micah read this verse earlier in Philippians chapter 2, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, the story of Jesus, the biography of Jesus is this. Jesus existed eternally in the past with the Father in heaven. And he looked and saw a broken world in need, and he chose voluntarily to take a step down and to continue to take a step down until he reached earth, until he became a human being. He continued to take a step down, humbling himself, even being hung on a cross, treated inhumanely as a human being who was fully God. And so, who did Jesus say he was? The first thing you need to understand is Jesus was God. This is what we call the incarnation. Again, every other religion in the world teaches that man can become God. Do you know what Christianity teaches? God became man. Jesus was not a good man who became God. He was God who became man. The word incarnation is packed with meaning. Um, Do you ever study carnivores when you were in junior high school? What do carnivores eat? What do carnivores eat? They eat meat. The word carne means meat. When we talk of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is we believe that God became meat. He was 100% God wrapped in a human body. And for 33 years, He lived on this earth, and he began to teach a few things and began to declare a few things. Here are three of the things that Jesus declared about himself. First of all, he said, I and the Father are one. That's what eventually got him crucified, because he claimed to be God. He also claimed this, I am the resurrection and the life. He also claimed this, and this is the most controversial one in our day. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus claimed that faith in Him is the only path to God. That's an exclusive claim. It's a controversial claim. Does it shock you that Jesus would claim that He is the only way? It should shock us that Jesus is the only way. It should shock us that God the Father made any way for us to be made right with Him. And so Jesus claimed to be God, He claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and He claimed that He was the way to be made right with God. So we believe that Jesus took on human form. The next thing this verse teaches us is that He humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross. 
Do you know what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross was substitution. Jesus died on a cross in my place for my sin. It was a place of substitution. And it was the place where a great transaction took place. We call it the doctrine of imputation. God credited all of my sin to Christ on the cross and treated Christ as if He had committed every sin of every person who would ever believe. So that God the Father could treat every person who would ever believe in Jesus as if they had never sinned. That's the doctrine of imputation. On the cross, Jesus died for sin. It was substitution. But then, God validated that sacrifice by by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection is the place where God put His stamp of approval on the life and the death of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've seen the news reports in recent days. Um, Over in Israel, there is a historical place where tradition says Jesus rose from the dead. There's a tomb there, and throughout the centuries, there have been different monuments and buildings on this particular tomb. Right now, there's a huge church sitting on top of it. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's all these different things that have been built around it that is the supposed tomb of Jesus. Well, people that don't really know the whole story, like CNN and NBC and the New York Times, they heard they were going to do some renovations over there on this monument church where the tomb was. And so, I don't know if you've seen these headlines recently, but they've said things like this. They've said, crypt believed to be Jesus' tomb open for the first time in centuries. And there were documentaries and National Geographic went in there with cameras and they were going to open the tomb. And these reporters were just salivating over the fact that they would hope they would find things. And there were other headlines that said things like, you'll never believe what they found. And of course, they opened it up. And guess what they found? Nothing. But they never reported that. They just talked about how the bricks, you know, were suffering some water damage through the years and everything. They never reported the fact that he's still missing. He's still gone. He's not there. He's alive. Somehow they miss over the most important fact of the assignment there. Now, maybe that is hard for you to believe. It should be hard for you to believe. It's kind of unbelievable until God opens your eyes to believing it. But let me ask you, if you don't believe that, what are the other options? There's really only four other options. Number one, you could believe that his foes, his enemies, stole the body which was never claimed by any of his foes, but you could believe that. But let me ask you this question. Once this movement got started and once the gospel started to spread and churches began to to, to spread this message and be planted around the world, don't you think that those that would want to discredit their story would just simply bring the body back out and say, he's dead. Your movement's based on a lie. They never did that. Do you know why? Because he's not dead, he's alive. Your only other, another option, number two, would be that his friends stole his body. So maybe the disciples got together and there was this big conspiracy and somehow they were able to overpower the Roman guards. Somehow they were able to roll the stone away and steal his body. 
Do you know how all of the disciples died? They died horrible, gruesome deaths. They were tortured, and none of them ever said, wait, 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 we stole his body. Do you know why? Because they didn't. He's alive. Another theory is that somehow Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. He just had a really bad day. He bled a lot and he got some bruises, but he he somehow survived that. And after they'd wrapped his body in 75 pounds of spices and wrapped him in the cloth, and somehow he went in there in that cool grave and they rolled the stone in there. And somehow he woke up and he got out of the grave clothes. And after losing most of his blood, being beaten, stabbed in the side, he was able to move the stone away, defeat the Roman soldiers in the process, and just kind of disappear into history. Right. Here's a better option. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He has highly exalted Him to the place where we today celebrate He is alive. Jesus' resurrection means He is who He says He is. Here's the second thing. Jesus' resurrection means my two biggest enemies have been defeated, namely sin and death. Look at this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the Scripture, because it had been predicted for centuries in the Old Testament, that He was buried, that He was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, all of these things took place. Enemy number one for all of us is sin. And I know you don't like to be called a dirty, rotten sinner. I don't like saying it. I don't like believing it about myself, but it's true that deep down on the inside of me, at my core, is a sinner. My biggest problem is not that I commit sins. My biggest problem is that I am a sinner. That's why I commit sins. Now, if you've wondered what sin is, for many years it's been debated what is a sin. You can boil it down to this. Sin is actually an acronym. Selfishness. That's what sin is. You selfish? You want your own way? You want to kick God off the throne? You want to define your own rules? You want to be your own God? At the core of who we are, self is in control. And because of that, we commit sins. And we think that sin is just a is just bad behavior. Sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is a bent in me. It's a brokenness in me. Sin is not just bad behavior. Sin doesn't just make you bad. Here's the biggest problem. Sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. It kills you. Sin kills. And you don't need to be made better Most people think that if I come to church, it's one of the ways I can get better. You don't need to be made better. You need to be made alive. Sin is my biggest problem. Sin has a penalty. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Before I became a pastor, before I went to seminary and began to study the Bible. I actually studied technology. This may surprise you. 
I have a degree in information technology from 1989. I have a degree in 1980s technology, and it makes me, it makes me dangerous. I'm not sure what I destroyed there, but I'm sure it will come back. It's all about the resurrection. Um, the other day, um, my computer was acting up. How many of you have ever experienced a day when your computer was not acting, was not obeying your commands, right? And because you're selfish, it makes you angry, right? And because I have a 1980s technology degree, I figured I can fix this. I'm kind of a hacker. And so I began to trade out cables, you know, and, and then I, I actually um, took it to the store. They, they replaced the monitor because the monitor wasn't right. I changed out everything until finally I had to pick up the phone. I had to call the service guy that had a 1999 degree in technology who could actually come and work on the thing. And he, he ripped the whole thing apart and he finally got down to this. Do you know what this is? What do we call this? The motherboard, because you had a freshman class in computers, you know that, right? And on the motherboard, what's the most important part of the motherboard? The CPU. There's a guy that's got a 1999 degree in technology right there. CPU stands for what? He's so proud of that. Central processing unit. It's right here. Do you know what was wrong with my computer? The CPU. That puppy right there. You see, what those of us know that have a degree in technology is this, the, this is really the only thing that does anything in a computer. And really the only thing it does is differentiates between a one and a zero, it just does it really fast. That's what was wrong with my computer. And it didn't matter how many of the peripherals I changed out. It didn't, ha- it didn't matter how many software upgrades I performed. There was something wrong with my CPU. And do you know what's wrong with you? Your CPU, your central processing unit, deep down on the inside of you, it is busted. And whether you are a Mac or a PC, you have the SIN virus. And it is causing all kinds of problems. Sin is an enemy that must be defeated. And sin has a penalty. So in order for me to be made right with God, do you know what has to happen? My sin penalty has to be paid, and my perfection has to be performed. Do you know what Jesus Christ did through His death, burial, and resurrection? He paid my penalty on the cross, and then He lived my life of perfection through His life and His resurrection. Jesus paid my penalty, He performed my perfection, and so now that sin enemy has been defeated, and death has been defeated. The penalty for sin is death, and that's the reason we all die. Now, you're either going to die once or you're going to die twice. If you are born once, you will die twice. You will die a physical death and you will die a spiritual death in eternity because the way we define death is not the cessation of life. The way the Bible defines death is separation from the body and the soul. And in a spiritual sense, death is a separation between God and man. And until there is life that bridges the gap, you will die not just a physical death, you will die a spiritual death. But there's good news. The resurrection gives us hope that if we are born twice, we will only have to die once. 
You can be born again this morning by believing in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you think I am talking about making you religious. I am not. You have to understand the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion teaches that man reaches up to God, and maybe even this morning you came because somehow you were hoping that God kind of showed, hey, God, I, I checked my card on Easter Sunday, came to church, did my very best, and I'm, I'm going to try harder this next year. Before I come to church next Easter, I'm going to try a lot harder. This was a really good service. It's ought to last a whole year. That's religion. Do you know what the gospel teaches? The gospel teaches it's God that reaches down to man. In religion, I believe if I obey, I'm accepted by God. The gospel teaches I'm accepted, therefore I obey God. It's because I know I'm loved and accepted by God. I want to serve Him. I want to obey Him. Religion believes if I'm good, God will love me. But the gospel teaches I'm dead but God makes dead things live. Religion focuses on what I do. The gospel focuses on what Jesus has already done in my place. And religion produces people that are proud on days they do good and despair on days they do bad. But the gospel produces a humility and a confidence, realizing that my standing before God doesn't have to do with my performance, it has to do with His performance. Jesus' resurrection means my two greatest enemies have been defeated. Here's the last thing. The resurrection of Jesus means I have to decide if I believe it. You have to decide. You say, I, I've got too many doubts. Look at this verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If, that's a conditional word. That means you, you get to choose. If you, not your grandmother, not your wife, if you, not your parents, for those of you that grew up going to church every Sunday and go to a Christian school and are forced to read your Bible, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot be saved if you do not believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, thereby validating who He said He was. And so we have to confess. To confess means to agree with. It means to say the same thing. If I say the same thing about Jesus that God has already said about Jesus, then I can be saved. It means two things are necessary. Not only that I have to believe it, but I have to believe it to the point where it actually changes me. The Scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, so it doesn't matter what you've done, all that passes away. And new things have come. Now, some of you may say, well, I, I believe some things about Jesus. I, I believe parts of the Bible, and it's just really hard for me to get past some of the things that he taught. And listen, if he's alive, he gets to set the rules. 
If he is a dead man who is now alive, he is God, therefore he gets to set the rules. Some people, I just believe he's a good moral teacher. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, um, you can't simply claim he was a good moral teacher because he never had that effect on people. People had one of three reactions to Jesus Christ who actually encountered, with him, encountered life with him. Number one, terror. Number two, hatred. Or number three, worship. Those are your only three options. He never had the effect on people that somehow they heard him teach and they casually went away and gave him passive approval. And I'm not going to let you do that here today either. You have to decide what you believe about Jesus. C.S. Lewis went on to say, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell, you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him down as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being some great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, nor did he intend to. You have to make a decision. You have to choose to believe. And some of you are really religious people. You've gone through confirmation, you've been baptized, and you try to be as good as you can. You would never think of intentionally sinning or hurting God, and yet it is possible, like a baseball player, you have rounded the bases but never touched first base. On June the 17th, 1967, 1962, There was a game played between the New York Mets and the Chicago Cubs. How many Cubs fans in the room right now? Some of you cheered more for the Cubs just then than you did earlier when we were singing about being resurrected. Shame, shame. So you're excited about the Cubs. Maybe you know about this story. Chicago's marvelous Marv Throneberry slammed a two-run triple. And while he was catching his breath on third base, the Cubs' first baseman, Ernie Banks, called for the ball over at first base. The pitcher threw him the ball. The umpire said, you're out, he called Marv Throneberry out at third. Casey Stingle came out to argue with the umpire. The umpire said, it's not going to do you any good. He missed second, too. Some of you have done the same thing with Jesus. You think you are so far down the road in your religion that you have never simply repented of sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Zach, come up here a second. This is my good-looking and very talented son who lost the rest of his pants somewhere between church and home. And I I just want to simply 
demonstrate for you what we're talking about when we talk about belief. Watch this. Zach, do you believe in that chair? Yeah. Do you believe that chair will hold you up if you sit in it? Yes. He's a smart young man, don't you think? (laughs) One more question. My son, why is that chair not currently holding you up? I'm not sitting on it. 100%. What would you have to do in order to make me believe that you believe that chair would hold you up? Sit on it. Once again, a demonstration of intellect. Son, would you now demonstrate your belief in that chair? Another, now an example of athleticism, wouldn't you say? Yes. All right, son, you can now take that chair off the stage. Now listen, some of you would say, I am not a person of faith. I don't believe in things I can't see. That is simply not true. Every one of you came in here today, and you didn't examine that chair. You didn't crawl under it. You didn't measure its strength. You just plopped yourself right down in there. And when you did, do you know what you did? You trusted that chair. You believed in that chair. There are some of you that believe in Jesus, and you say, I believe He would hold me up. I believe He'll take me to heaven. But you haven't convinced me that you believe because you haven't demonstrated belief in trusting and resting upon, placing all of your weight on the person and the work, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what is necessary in order for us to be saved according to this verse. With your mouth, confession is made. You know what that means? This is not a private thing. It's a very personal thing but it's not a private thing. Do you remember how Jesus told Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone? You say, yeah, that's me. I'm not going to tell anyone. Until he rises from the dead. We're past that now. It is time for you to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart. And it really is a hard issue. You can't just say you believe it. It's got to be something that transforms your being. On, June, on August 28, 1982, my church canceled services, and they said, meet us down at the convention center. And we had special services, and we brought in a special speaker and a band, and it was much like this. I, this reminds me so much of August 28, 1982. Now, it was in Oklahoma. All we had was a rodeo arena, so it, it, was, the, it was the rodeo arena, and I sat over there. I heard a man preach, and he challenged me to do the thing I'm now challenging you to do, to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And if you'll do that, you'll be saved from sin, you'll be saved from death, 
And in your confession of Him, notice you're not confessing Him as Savior. You're confessing Him as Lord, as boss, as the one in control, as the one in charge. Are you 100% sure that if you died on your way home from this Easter service, that you would have a home in heaven, that your sin is forgiven, that you have been made right with God, not because of your performance, but because of the performance of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. My question to you is simply this. Have you ever been resurrected? Has God ever made the deadness in you alive? Has God made your heart alive to Him through the Spirit? Are you confident of that? I'd like everybody right now just to bow your head, close your eyes. I venture to say there's been very little new that you've heard today. It's not new news, but it is good news that today you can be absolutely certain that you are right with God. If you've never done that before, I want to ask you to open your heart, first of all, and confess, Lord, I know deep down on the inside, I really am a dirty, rotten sinner. At the core of who I am, there's a heart of selfishness. I want to be my own God. And it's shown up in so many different sins. Maybe your sins aren't like Frankie's sins. Maybe your sins aren't like your spouse's sins. But they're still sin. And it still requires a penalty. And if in this moment, you would place your trust in Christ as my son Zach placed his trust in that chair. Put all of your weight, all of your confidence, all of your hope of heaven, all of your desire to be forgiven, not in your ability, not in your religion, not in your baptism, not in your confirmation, not in your church attendance, but simply in the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Tell him that. I trust you believe that you died on that cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. Confess your sin. Ask Him to forgive you. Cleanse me, Lord Jesus. Make me new. Give me new life through your resurrection power. And then would you pray this last thing? Lord, would you help me never to be ashamed of you? I ask you to open your heart. Next, I'm going to ask you to do something harder. I'm going to ask you to open your mouth. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 
I'm going to ask you to open your mouth and tell somebody, today I have trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord. And this is the way I'm going to ask you to do that. Under your seat, there's a card. As a matter of fact, I'd like everybody right now just to reach under your seat, dig through the pile of confetti, and grab that card. Pull it out. If you've got a pen, I'd like you to begin just to write your name on there. But don't get distracted by all the contact information at the bottom. Would you look at those boxes at the top? If today is the day, just like I did in that rodeo arena, if today is the day that you say, I have turned from sin and embraced Christ by faith, would you check that box? Others of you may say, you know what? I'm kind of in that first group. I believe this stuff. I believe this stuff, but it, it hasn't penetrated to the core, and, and today I want to renew my commitment to Christ, you can check that second box. And if today is the day that you've received Christ as Lord, the very next step for you is to be baptized. And we would love to schedule your baptism. You can check that box, I want to be baptized. Maybe you've made some other decision today, you can write that there in the box. But in order to seal that in your heart, and in order for us as a church to care for you and to love you and to help you. I've asked the pastors and elders of our church to come and meet me up front here. In just a moment, Micah's gonna lead us in a song. And we're gonna give you an opportunity, not only to believe in your heart, but to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I'd like you just to simply take this card that you've already checked, step out into the aisle, Step on a couple of toes as you do. It'll be more fun if you do it that way. Make your way to the aisle. Come to one of these men and hand this card to them. And it'll be your way of saying, I'm confessing Jesus is Lord. Do you truly believe? Today are you turning and repenting of sin? That's what we're going to do. So I'd like us all to stand right now. Don't get distracted. But please stand. I'm going to pray for us. And the moment that I say amen, that is your clue to take a step. Don't wait. We're not going to be here all day. If you don't want to move, I'm not going to make you move. If the Holy Spirit can't make you move, I got no chance. But this is your invitation, your first opportunity to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And there's going to be people coming from all over to these pastors. We're just simply going to take you out of the hallway. Here we have a new believers kit for you. We want to give you a, a Bible and some things to get you started. And it'll give us a chance to follow back up with you and see how you're doing and care for you in a way that we couldn't if you would confess, if you wouldn't confess. So let's bow our heads. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. And Father, I want to thank you for new life in Christ. I want to thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the regenerating power of your spirit right now that's giving new life to people that are confessing you as the Lord, repenting of sin. I pray that, God, you would give them courage. I know because for years I put it off, for years I made excuses, for years I tried to convince myself I'd already done that, and yet I didn't have a story. I pray, God, that you would make changes in our lives the way that we've already seen, the way that you did in Frankie and Bree. Give us a story of life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to come right now. Don't wait. Bring this.